Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 237, Revolutionary Surgeons, with Dr. Per Olaf Hasselgren. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few moments, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Per Olaf Hasselgren, a practicing surgeon and author of the recent book, Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge. The book's a profile of 11 surgeons on both sides of the Revolutionary War. Dr. Hasselgren and I discuss the Boston Patriots, brothers, and brothers-in-arms, Joseph and John Warren. Joseph is famous for arranging the lantern signal from Old North Church and dispatching Paul Revere on his famous ride, as well as for his heroic death at Bunker Hill. His little brother John followed him into politics and into the Continental Army before founding Harvard Medical School in the waning years of the Revolution. Per Olaf brings a unique perspective to our conversation, examining the medical careers of these eminent physicians through a physician's eyes. We'll talk about how 18th century physicians learned their craft, how they earned a living, and how they intermingled medicine and politics. We also discuss how surgery was changing during the Revolutionary Era, and the groundbreaking surgery pioneered by John Warren and by his son, John Collins Warren. But before we talk about the Warren brothers and medicine during the Revolution, it's time for a word from the sponsor of this week's podcast. Liberty & Co. sells unique products inspired by the American Revolution, and many of them have themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past. One of their specialties is a range of beautiful prints, many of which are made using historical methods right here in Boston by the historical print shop Eads & Gill that operates out of Faneuil Hall. Printer Gary Gregory adopted the name of the 18th century print shop that published the Boston Gazette, a notorious Whig paper that printed Joseph Warren's essay A True Patriot that helped fan the flames of revolution and nearly got Warren locked up. Gary uses a reproduction of a wooden English common press that was made in Colonial Williamsburg to print faithful reproductions of historic documents using authentic materials, equipment, and methods. Among the prints available from Liberty & Co. is a reproduction of Thomas Paine's American Crisis, the legendary pamphlet that helped George Washington inspire his soldiers to stick out the cold winter at Valley Forge with the opening challenge, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he who stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. You could also select a magnificent copy of the Declaration of Independence carefully reproduced from the Dunlap broadside, which was the very first printed version of the Declaration, with the first pressing struck in Philadelphia on the evening of July 4, 1776. The Eads and Gill copy is printed at three-quarters scale, to be more convenient to frame and display in your home than a full 18th century broadsheet. Liberty & Co. also offers beautiful reproductions of Paul Revere's engraving of the British troops landing at Long Wharf to begin the occupation of Boston and a carefully rendered 1775 British military map of Boston created during the siege. You can get 20% off of any order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O 
and use the discount code HUBHISTORY. I'm joined now by Dr. Per Olaf Hasselgren, author of the new book, Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge. He's a practicing surgeon at Beth Israel, and he has an endowed chair at Harvard Medical School. He also has a long-standing interest in surgical and American history. As you hear his charming accent, you may be tempted to think that Dr. Hasselgren is an unlikely scholar of the American Revolution, but his extensive knowledge of 18th century surgical history argues otherwise. Perolov, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I've invited you here today to discuss your book, Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge, which is basically composed of profiles of 10 surgeons who were active in the American Revolution. What were your goals? What were you hoping to achieve with this book? Well, maybe first to satisfy my own curiosity, when I sort of discovered how important surgeons had been during the American Revolution, I got uh, even more interested. I come from another country. I come from Sweden originally, and we don't learn much about American history. Mm -hmm. In Sweden, like you guys, may not learn that much about European history as we do, obviously. And then I am a surgeon since uh, 45 years and um, have been interested in surgical history for many many years. And then uh, when I came to this country, I also became interested in the American history. And when I understood they merged, so to speak, I got even more that it, that piqued my interest, and um, that sort of generated my reading a lot about this. And I realized that not much was written about American about surgeons during the American Revolution. I mean, there are a lot of books about surgeons in the Civil War, in the the World Wars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but relatively little information, little few books, fewer books about surgeons in the American Revolution. And so here we are. What's your surgical specialty? So it's what you call endocrine surgery, so you, uh, which means surgery of uh, thyroid gland, parathyroid gland, adrenal gland, etc. So how do you go from endocrine surgery to such an intense interest in, in the history of surgery and surgeons? Well, that's not a natural leap from endocrine surgery specifically, but more from surgery as such. And, and that sort of generated my uh, my combined interest in the <laughs> American Revolution and the and the history of surgery. Because there was not a lot of endocrine surgery specifically at the time of the American Revolution. That had right. not been sort of uh, practiced yet. It sounds like there weren't really surgical subspecialties at all during that era. That's right. There was not even a subspecialty in terms of surgeon versus uh, doctors in, in a sense. Not a formal uh, division of that, but mm-hmm. so a surgeon was a physician was interested in doing surgery, basically, and and uh, it was more common to have a mixed type of uh, practice in those days. But some people got more into anatomy and dissection and surgery and and got to do that most of the time. But I think there were only few surgeons who did only surgery in their practices, and obviously no surgeons did endocrine surgery at that time. How many of the physicians in the book would have even had formal medical education? So the formal medical education um, was done by doing apprenticeships, and most of the all of them that I describe in the book had had formal training in that sense. A few lucky ones had sort of wealthy parents or other means to get to Europe for further training, and then they could end up in Edinburgh. Finally, usually they went to London first for a couple of years and did sort of practical cutting and surgery. Uh, but there were no medical schools in London at that time, and uh, the academic education of physicians and surgeons 
It took place basically in Edinburgh. And among these surgeons that I've described, probably four or five of them had MD degrees when they came back from, from England. The Revolutionary Era was basically 70 years before anesthesia was first used here in Boston and closer to a century before uh, antibiotics became w- widespread. So what would surgery have, have looked like during the, the Revolutionary Era? Well, because of lack of uh, anesthesia, obviously surgery needed to be fast. Uh, so it, it, the common saying is that it was fast, uh, dirty, and dangerous. Hmm. And uh, so the fast uh, part of that statement reflects the fact that patients obviously suffered horrendous pain. And so most likely outside any quote-unquote operating room, there would be screams and hollers and kicking and so forth that that hmm. would be perceived not only by people in the surrounding, but, but by, by the patient, obviously, and also by the surgeons. So that was um, probably uh, one aspect of it. And the other aspect of the pain, obviously, was that patients did not allow themselves to be cut into unless they really had, had um, a dangerous uh, or a, a painful condition, such as a bladder stone, for example, or uh, you know, gangrene of the leg that they understood they would die if they didn't, if they didn't take the leg off. So the, and the other aspect of your question, I guess, uh, is related to antibiotics. And so antibiotics, as you pointed out, came around much later on when the concept of bacteria had been uh, sort of discovered and Lister had propagated for sterile conditions during operations. So in those days, in the 1700s, I think they were lucky if they had clean or sanitized conditions. And one of these surgeons I describe in the book, Benjamin Rush from Philadelphia, he worked hard on getting cleanliness into the concept of uh, of surgical care and medical care. Although he didn't also understand, obviously, that there were bacteria around. But he, I guess, just by intuition, he understood that if you had dirty fingers, that shouldn't be good. And so that's a great difference from nowadays, obviously. Was surgery changing during the Revolutionary War? And there would have been an abundance of patients that seemed like it, it may have accelerated change. Yes, yeah, so surgery was developing and evolving during the uh, during that time. And uh, uh, so the uh, 18th century, the 1700s, has been characterized as the, as the era or century of um, surgeon anatomists. So the foundation, obviously, of surgery was understanding the anatomy, and that became widespread during the 1700s. And hence, the uh, surgeons in those days understood better and better what the body looked like. There had been religious and other reasons people hadn't done dissections that much before. Although it's, it's in itself, having said that, it's also an ancient thing. But, but it sort of took off during the um, 1700s, in particular in Europe. Physicians interested in surgery started to understand what the body looked like. And that in itself promoted development of the surgical techniques and surgical uh, procedures that could be performed a little more safely than previously. You're careful to point out in the book that although it's about 10 of our Revolutionary War era physicians, you're careful to point out that not every physician or not every American surgeon was a patriot. But the first couple of chapters are about some of our our favorite local patriots. If you don't if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the Warren family, starting with Joseph Warren, who kicks off the book. I like to think of Joseph Warren almost as the the ultimate patriot. He was the mastermind of Paul Revere's ride, the hero of Bunker Hill. You start his chapter with a description of his death at Bunker Hill. 
Uh, I know at one point when he was alive, uh, General Warren said that he hoped to die knee-deep in British blood. How close to the truth did he come? Yeah, so he, he understood that uh, blood would be shed during a revolution or during a breaking away from the uh, English Empire. And he, as you pointed out, I think I quoted that even, that uh, we will probably walk knee-high in the blood uh, if this happens. And, you know, uh, when he was on uh, at Bunker Hill or Breed's Hill, there is a readout up on the top and... Mm-hmm. When the um, Redcoats finally broke through the defense uh, lines, uh, which took them three marches up the hill, as you as you obviously know, uh, but, but when they finally broke through, I mean they were they were brutal. I mean they killed everything in their way, and there were blood flowing in in those readouts. And so he got his wish fulfilled. One can say literally. And he was a very recognizable figure, an orator, a politician. So. He would have been recognized by the Redcoats as they came up into the, the readout. Yes, yeah, so they recognized him. Uh, also, they, they were delightful to see him there, to be able to kill him. I mean, he was hated. <laughs> uh, there are descriptions when he walked around the streets of Boston before the war started, and, and the Redcoats arrested him, and and he they didn't let him alone because they understood he would be, he already was, and would become an important leader of any movement that would develop to break away from the motherland, so to speak. And uh, so the saying was that the, the death of him was worth 500 lives for the British, and that may have been true. And um, so he was well-recognized and uh, was probably a target. So I guess when he showed up there on, uh, at one of those um, defense uh, lines, uh, I'm not sure if they knew he was up there when, when they started, uh, the battle, but when they discovered that, and I think they knew who they were killing, and they treated his body badly after his death. Do you want to describe what was done to him? If you read different historians' descriptions of it and, and other original sources, I think it's not completely known, but I think it's fair to say that he obviously was killed by um, being shot uh, at close range, and then they... Um, they stuffed the scoundrel into one hole together with another dead um, uh, revolutionary uh, warrior. Mm-hmm. And then they came back after later on, I think the same day even, and took the dirt away from his body, uh, stamped on stamped on. I mean, they were stamping on his body and, and mutilated the body and chopped his head off. Um, and then they threw him back into that uh, hole in the ground. And it would actually take one year before the, he was, the body was discovered or was found. And that's in itself in, is an interesting story. So when he had died at the Battle of Bunker Hill, his, bro- his younger brother John uh, came down from Salem where he was starting a surgical practice at that time and was looking for his brother. And obviously John got scared when he couldn't find him and he st- finally realized that he was probably killed. John Joseph was probably killed. And uh, to the great sorrow of him and his family. And then later on, uh, about a year later, I think, there was a search patrol going out trying to identify the grave where Joseph Warren had been, um, had been buried. And uh, they found this um, body and the remnants of the body and the head, more importantly, perhaps. And uh, this is sometimes called as the first forensic uh, work in terms of looking at a dead body and trying to um, determine the cause of death and so forth. I mean, like a um, like an autopsy 
uh, after a murder, for example. And um, so the Revere was in the group of people looking for the grave. And Revere said, aha, I can see that. That is Joseph's head because he has this prosthesis that I made for him. So he had made, he was, also, as you know, Revere was, Paul Revere was a silversmith. Mm-hmm. So he had made a prosthesis in his, in Joseph's upper jaw. Uh, and that when he found that, he said, I recognize that. That's what this is Joseph's head or Joseph's skull. The brutality that the British treated him with kind of goes to show how hated he was for being such a leader. But when you look back on on his early life, he seems like both an unlikely leader and really an unlikely surgeon. How did Joseph Warren go from a boyhood on a farm in, in rural Roxbury to uh, Harvard and then on to be a doctor? Well, obviously, the way you just described, that is going through school. I mean, he went to Roxbury Latin School, I think it was called, and then he went to Harvard at the age of 14 which was seemed okay. to have been a common age at that time when you started college. Hmm. And he became interested in, in anatomy relatively early, and that's what's, what sort of spiked his interest in becoming a physician and ultimately a surgeon. And then after college, his further education or his further life, so to speak, was also interesting because then he – so he was supported by the local people living in Roxbury at that time, his he was a his father had died and his mother was taking care of him and his brothers and was trying to run the farm so they were not wealthy people uh, so the local people in Roxbury I think supported him economically to go to college and he paid that back after the Harvard years by being a school teacher in Roxbury for about a year and then he um, he pursued the medical interest by. Uh, applying for and being accepted for apprenticeship with James um, Lloyd, who was one of the uh, premier surgeons and uh, physicians in Boston at that time. He was sort of a society, higher society type of uh, uh, physician. But he took on Joseph Warren, and he had an apprenticeship of two years. And then he got his... Uh, so the, the, the so that's sort of goes back to the first question you asked, how many were formally trained and had an education? So the formal training, as I said, for Joseph Warren and later on for John as well, was an apprenticeship. And the typical thing was that they were like maybe three to five years. His first apprenticeship was two years. Um, and maybe because he was smart and a good student or maybe because of economic restraints. But then at the end of an apprenticeship, the master would issue a diploma confirming that uh, this and that person has gone through the training and is now considered able to independently practice medicine. Only about a year, not much more than a year, after Dr. Warren started his own practice, there was a smallpox epidemic in Boston in 1764. And I've talked about this epidemic pretty extensively in the past on the podcast, but always from a patient's perspective, usually using the lens of, of John Adams because he, he wrote so much about his experience. But what would a smallpox epidemic like that have been like from the perspective of a physician like Joseph Warren? So Joseph Warren, as you pointed out, 1764, you know, just shortly after his uh, finishing his apprenticeship, was starting his and opening his up, up his own practice. And then Boston was hit by another round of uh, smallpox epidemics. It's the best known smallpox epidemic in, in Boston was the one 1721 because that's when inoculation really started to take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Dr. Boylston 
Uh, and then, uh, uh, what's his name? Cotton Mather. C- Cotton Mather, right. The, the, exactly right. So that story you obviously are familiar with. Yeah. And, and they suffered, I mean, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, um, harassment from the public and from clergy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that influenced them. I think that aspect had sort of vanished at the time of, um, Joseph Warren's help with inoculations. So at the time, the governor in Massachusetts ordered a group or assembled a group of physicians, among them Joseph Warren, to inoculate um, Bostonians for free. And obviously it was a dangerous proposition because they they dealt with live virus, although they didn't know about virus at that time, but they, they dealt with material or matter that they understood could could uh, give the, give themselves smallpox. So they sort of became heroes, and I think, uh, you know, his... Joseph's uh, participation in the um, smallpox, in the inoculation campaign, 1764, helped him to become one of the heroes in Boston and sort of got him on to a running start in terms of then building on that reputation and generating patience for his practice. It's about a, a decade, a little more than a decade between that smallpox outbreak and his death. What would he have been doing in, in the meantime to grow his practice? So I, I mean, I know there were, there were advertisements in, in those days, the newspapers. I'm, I haven't seen any ad for, from him, but other, for example, uh, Dr. Benjamin Church advertised about his skills and that he was coming back from England. And that was one of the advantages having the, the, um, foreign training that you came, came back with an MD degree and, and could really brag and boast about that. And Joseph Warren, um, I'm not certain he advertised that the same, in the same way. But I think, um, like for any good surgeon, or like for any, anybody who wants to build a surgical practice or a medical practice, uh, one, you need to be a good doctor and you need to be a compassionate doctor and you need to treat your patients well. And I think he did that. And he treated patients regardless of their status in the society, which I think obviously was appreciated. And he also, obviously he needed income, so he charged patients. It was a practice for fee type of practice. Of course, Blue Cross and Medicare wouldn't have existed yet. <laughs> right, right. And But he, I mean, the impression you get when you read documents about him or other biographies about him is that he was not primarily interested in the money. He, he was um, a humanistic person, I think, and really wanted to help people. And that obviously helped in terms of building a practice. And he... He had patients from all different layers of society, uh, both from the loyalist side, so to speak, and from the higher society and from from Whigs. And uh, I don't think he really, at least initially, didn't care about that. He didn't pay attention to that. Later on, when he became a a um, an active patriot, probably that would play a greater role in his, uh, not in the way he treated patients, but probably in terms of which patients came to see him, I would assume. Ironically, it sounded like his care for some of the the poorest people in Boston helped generate the most reliable revenue for his practice. So the, there was this almshouse. There was type of a socialized medicine in a way, and I think I even make that parallel in the book if I remember correctly. But so there was um, there was patients who were paid, and the care for that for those patients were paid for by the state, by Massachusetts state. And it was also like, um, like today we have a similar situation with the VA, a physician working at the VA, he gets a salary mm-hmm. and a fixed salary. 
and uh, there are no fees to be paid for by the patients. And the same thing at the Almshaus. And it also became a, a, um, a, a source of controversy, I think, because um, they were expecting, I mean, the, the surgeons who did that were expecting a good compensation from the state, um, and they were accused of being too interested in that. Maybe not Joseph Warren that much, as his brother later on uh, was criticized for that, to be, to um, try to suck as much out of that system as possible in terms of economic remuneration. And during this period when he was building his practice and finding a way to, to make a living from it, what was Joseph Warren's family life like? So he married um, a uh, at least comparatively wealthy woman, um, Elizabeth Houghton. And um, interesting enough, that was described in the local press at that time that this young, successful doctor is um, marrying Elizabeth Houghton, a lady of um, good resources or something like that was the expression. <laughs> and I think they were they were... Um, there were some rumors that he actually married her for the money, which I don't, I, I mean, from when I read, I don't think that was the case. I think they had a good marriage and they had four children. And uh, she died at a relatively young age, tragically. And so all of a sudden he was a widower with four children to take care of. So, um, and he, he was, um, I think he was a, um, a good catch, you know, looked upon as a good catch for, for women. So I don't think he had, would have a, had a difficulty finding another wife later on, although he never had time to really establish that completely. Um, so he found there was one lady who he um, probably most likely was engaged with and the plan they planned to marry later on. All that is also somewhat um, uncertain from historical uh, documents. But he also probably had some affairs on the side, uh, there is the story about the young woman who got pregnant already when she was a teen teenager. And what has raised historians' suspicions is that on the day, I think it was the same day as the Battle of um, Bunker Hill occurred, he was a little delayed coming there because he had seen a pregnant patient, as was explained in some documents. And I think the suspicion is, or the, 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 um, the assumption may have been that he was to see her and make certain that she, her pregnancy was doing well before he went uh, to the battlefield. And he said he will be back later on, you know, I'll just need to take care of these, these red coats first. But uh, obviously he didn't make it back. So he had, um, and he may have had other, um, uh, women in his life as well. So there is this story about, um, uh, Mrs. Gage. Marianne, no, no, yeah, Marianne, I think, first name. Who is the wife of General Thomas Gage. Exactly right, who was the commander in in, London, in um, Boston at that time. And uh, so the, the rumor about, uh, you know, he, he, he called the alarm because he was alerted to the fact that the British was coming out of Boston and going to Lexington and Concord. And so the question was, how on earth did he know about that? So there is all these historical rumors, so to speak, that somebody whispered in his ear, and that may have been Margaret uh, Gage, uh, although that is also somewhat uncertain. There are other historians who claim that Margaret Gage may have been the mistress of uh, Paul Revere rather than Joseph Warren. So people um, uh, conducted those type of affairs in those days as well. <laughs> as the the imperial crisis starts heating up, Joseph Warren takes on more and more of a, a high-profile 
political role in, in Whig politics. But I'm I'm also curious how he experienced some of the the big events during that era as a physician. So what was Dr. Warren's role in the the murder of Christopher Sider or Snyder and in the Boston Massacre? So when Christopher Sider was killed, he, Joseph Warren was the one who got charged to the autopsy of him. And he could um, uh, release a pretty clear um, report, uh, confirm that he died from the shot uh, from um, from the um, he was a customs officer, but yeah, yeah I don't, a customs officer. His name off the top of my head, either. No, right, right. But so there's so many names in this. <laughs> but anyhow, no. So so that was that was his task at that time. When he came to the Boston massacre, he was involved in that as well. He was part of a delegation that went to Hutchinson and said, "You better get the British troops out of Boston because this is getting bad now. I mean, we can't we can't live with this." And so he was part of that. So, but there was another one of the um, revolutionary surgeons who then got um, charged with doing the autopsy of Attux, who was killed early on uh, during the massacre. And that was Benjamin Church who did that autopsy. Who has his own chapter in your book. Exactly right. <laughs> the Hutchinson had been a patient of, of Warren's, right? But it sounds like politics got in the way of their personal relationship. I think it ultimately did, but I think they were good friends and, uh, as you said, had a good patient-doctor uh, relationship initially. And um, as I also indicated before, I mean, when things started to crystallize in terms of where the country was, where the continent was going, uh, with the division between the British and the Americans, uh, it probably became more and more difficult to keep up a good relationship between them. And uh, I think the um, patient doctor relationship that at least I describe in the book about his um, headaches and stuff like that was earlier on before the friction really had started to degenerate the uh, relationship between them. As Joseph Warren became more politically involved or at least more visible politically, what sort of role was he playing? What was, what was his role within Whig politics? So he was a member of the Sons of Liberty, obviously, and he was a um, he was mentored, I think, by Samuel Adams, and uh, became involved in that way. He became involved in the um, Massachusetts Congress. He became involved in terms of um, being a driving force behind the uh, com- the Committee of um, Communications, and uh, then, of course, the Suffolk. Um, uh, 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 points that were made and brought to the Congress later on about the liberty of people, etc., etc. So he was very active and he was very um, prominent. But he all the time, I think he kept, well, uh, all the time he, d- he did keep his uh, surgical business or surgical practice going. Actually, he was in his surgical office on the night before the um, Lexington Concord events. Aside from Bunker Hill, that's probably the thing that people most know Joseph Warren for is for orchestrating the two if by sea lantern signals at Old North Church and then the midnight ride of Paul Revere and William Dawes. But how did Warren personally react to the intelligence that the British were going to march on on Lexington and Concord? You know, when he realized that the that um, the skirmish had actually started, that there was actually activities going on, or an engagement going on. He closed his practice. He turned his patients over to Eustis, 
the future Massachusetts governor and uh, and and told Eustace, you take care of the patients. I have to ride out there and, and help out on the battlefield. So he was he was both at Lexington, but he probably arrived uh, more in time for the um, engagement in Concord. And uh, so he he was uh, portrayed by his military colleagues to be very brave, indeed even reckless. And um, he got he was involved both as a military. Uh, trying to kill redcoats and but also trying to um, treat injured soldiers on the field. So he was very active indeed. Yeah, that's an aspect that I've not read nearly as much about. You always hear about the the signal and the dispatching of the the signal riders, and you hear less about his personal involvement in the battle. How did he spend the roughly two months then? The the Lexington and Concord fight happens at the big sort of mid-April, and then Bunker Hill's in mid-June, June 17th, I guess. So how did how did Dr. Warren spend the couple of months intervening? So, so I think he continued to have a very important political role, mm-hmm. because now was the, when the siege of uh, Boston started, really. They closed off Boston and tried to get the British out of the, uh, of the city. And John Hancock, he was more... Uh, an eager person to, I mean, he advised Joseph Warren to get in and, and get them out there, get them out of the town. But I think Joseph Warren was more careful and he understood that probably we don't have the resources or the military power to do that at this point. So maybe a siege is a better way to, to sort of starve them out. And he was very involved in that, in the uh, politics during those days and, um, and dealt with the, um, Political, I think there were negotiations, for example, about uh, exchange of uh, not prisoners, but there were p- obviously uh, patriots being locked in inside Boston and vice versa. There were loyalists who were locked out of the city and there were negotiations that, in which Joseph Warren took, took a part, trying to arrange for families to be reunited on either side of the, of the lines. They, they, I don't think those negotiations really, uh, resulted in a lot of uh, happy re- reunification, but families continue to be split on on the both sides of the city limit. Right. And of course, as you already described, he was killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill. And will you remind me, how old was he at the time he died? I think he was 34. It's amazing how influential somebody who died that young could be across generations. And it's the political inspiration, but he also ends up being pretty influential in medicine. And that's due really to his choice of apprentices. You mentioned William Eustace briefly, but will you uh, talk a little bit about the men who apprenticed as physicians with Dr. Joseph Warren? Right. So I think he had a total of five apprentices during his relatively short career, 10 years, as you indicated earlier. Mm-hmm. And the common denominator between those were they were all, all um, from Harvard. So he, they had the similar background. So they were uh, presumably well-educated young men. And there were three in particular that were interesting from a American Revolution standpoint. And that is uh, Eustace, who later on got into politics and became, I think he was an ambassador in Holland for some time. And then he came back and became the governor of uh, of Massachusetts. Another one, uh, another uh, apprentice was uh, Samuel Adams Jr. So Samuel Adams' son, uh, which is an interesting connection, obviously. 
And then, most importantly, his younger brother, his younger brother, John Warren, who apprenticed with um, Joseph. So Joseph was John's, uh, I think, hero in life, and uh, which made the tragedy at Bunker Hill even, even greater. So what was the age difference between John Warren and his brother Joseph? It was 12 years, 12 years in between, if I remember correctly, yes, 12 years. So he was, uh, but he also went a very similar type of education, New Roxbury Latin School and then Harvard at the age of 14. And then uh, uh, he had an apprentice, apprenticeship with his uh, older brother. And one thing I guess that would have been different for, for John when I think about uh, Joseph witnessing his father's death, he was I think, 14, 13 or 14 years old when his father died. But John would have been, I wonder if John would have even remembered his father. So, right. So, I think he was two only, two or three years old. And uh, I, uh, I bravely <laughs> argue in the book that he would remember that event the rest of his life. But uh, John was actually there when it happened. That's traumatic in a young child's yeah, life. right. I guess because their father died when John was so young, Mary Warren, their their mother, played a, a really big role in, especially in John's life. I, I loved your description of Thanksgiving at the Warren home. And as we're recording this, we're just a couple of weeks out from Thanksgiving here in the US. Will you give our listeners just a, a brief introduction to Mary and what her holiday celebrations were like? So she was very keen on traditions and she had every year she had her sons with her family come for the traditional Thanksgiving dinner and she always made certain that she had made food enough so she could send them back home with a package of food for another couple of days and she was described as a loving uh, a loving mother obviously and I think there was a close relationship between the mother and their sons maybe in particular Joseph as long as he lived and then John and there are letters uh, preserved from those times, and she always talked to them about my, my son, my my boy, etc. And even when they were grown up, to grown up enough to be surgeons in chief at the Cambridge Hospital and so forth. And so I think it was a very close relationship. Obviously, further fostered by the fact that she was a widow mm-hmm. and relied on their help. And I think the same thing. They were loving sons. So Joseph, when he was at Harvard, I don't think he stayed around and did what a lot of the other students did during the free time over the weekends, etc., etc. I think he came home and helped her, his mother uh, with the farm, with practical things at the farm. And, and he felt responsibility also because she had been very supportive economically, in particular when Joseph started the, um, the apprenticeship with uh, James um, Lloyd. Uh, he needed some, uh, he, I think he got a, Good deal anyhow, but I think it was helped by the fact that she put up some money as well to support Joseph during that apprenticeship. So it was, I think it was, it, it portrays, at least when you read about it, like a warm, very religious and very morally uh, high standard. She was very strict, I think, in terms of keeping them, the moral standard up and the religion up. And I think it's, it looks like it was a warm uh, family with a loving mother. I think. I remember reading that she lived into her 90s and she was very, very active into her mid or late 80s, at least. Yes, I think that's the case. Sounds like quite a lady. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, of John Warren, the younger brother, up until his apprenticeship with his older brother, Joseph, John Warren's education seems to have run pretty parallel to Joseph's. They both went to Roxbury Latin. 
Both went to Harvard, both had medical apprenticeships. But after he finished his apprenticeship with Joseph, it seems like John Warren really struggled to establish a practice that would support him. Why did he end up moving and and choosing to, to try and establish a practice in Salem? Because I think even if there were not then that many doctors around in those days, it was still a saturated market in uh, in Boston. And I think both he and Joseph understood that. So I think Joseph helped him give advice. You should probably look at somewhere else. And I, there was another surgeon who had just recently died up in Salem and left a practice after himself. So now it was only one, basically only one, Dr. Holyoke was up there. And so I think they both felt this may be a good opportunity. Uh, even so, he, as you, I think you pointed out that he struggled initially in terms of getting his uh, foothold uh, established in Salem because he came in as a young, inexperienced uh, surgeon or physician and uh, the people living in Salem my understanding was that there was only one doctor in the world and that was Dr. Holyoke he had been there for a long time and and all the previous doctor had died there was still Holyoke there and so I think um, John experienced that difficulty to breaking in so to speak Uh, and then after only about a year or so uh, the war started and and that obviously abruptly finished his career up in Salem. But um, I, I think he, st- he had started to gain some ground uh, when this happened. And, um, you know, he was advised also by friends and colleagues. Uh, so when, when the Bunker Hill battle had happened, he said, well, enough of this medicine. I'm going to in- help out in the war because there's a war coming. That's obviously. So he, he sort of thought about exchanging his scalpel to a gun. And, but he was advised by people up in uh, Salem, I think, but also by his colleagues and friends that you should serve. Yes, it's a good thing you want to serve the, the cause, but you should do it as a surgeon in the, in the uh, army instead. Obviously, he wasn't a publicly a politician the way Joseph was, but is there, is there evidence that he had strong political leanings or, or Whig beliefs before the war broke out? Yes, I mean, I think he was influenced by his brother. I mean, he spent a couple of years as an apprentice, and an apprentice in those days lived in the fam, in the in the house of the uh, the master, and obviously this was really family. They were brothers, so yes, I think he could not have avoided to be influenced by Joseph's political activities and and so forth. How old would John have been, or how long after his apprenticeship when Joseph died and and John joined up as a continental surgeon? probably 22, 23, so was a young man. And he was obviously that young when he moved and tried to establish himself as a surgeon in Salem as well, which may explain some of the difficulties he initially experienced. Right. What would John's first posting or first assignment have been like as a, a continental? He became a regimental surgeon. Um, in those days, they were tested. At this time, I think um, John Morgan was the... Um, Surgeon General for the Army, mm-hmm. uh, Benjamin Church, short career had already been ended. And uh, <laughs> so um, Jose, John went through that, those examinations and was approved. And first he became a, a surgeon in one of the uh, units. But then he also got involved with the, um, you know, with Dorchester, with the Rochester Heights and with the uh, uh, events in March of 1776 when the British had to evacuate uh, Boston. Well, it's interesting 
I've read some of Dr. Warren's letters, Dr. John Warren's letters to George Washington. He he was one of the very first people who were admitted into Boston after the British evacuated. He was called to examine medical supplies that were left behind. Mm-hmm. And he describes these medicines that were laced with arsenic. But I've never been really clear whether it was a deliberate attempt to poison people or just some sort of accidental contamination in the chaos of trying to evacuate this town. What do you think happened there? So I think there was deliberate. I think you know the the Brit the redcoats. I mean the British forces were really upset that they had to leave Boston and they had to leave without being allowed to plunder the city hmm. uh, because that was forbidden and they, there was no time for it. So I think they just wanted to make it as difficult as possible for the patriots when they came in to take it over. That's what I think. Um, I don't recall any evidence for that, but I, you're right in pointing out that he was one of the first uh, rebellions who were allowed in by George Washington. And the reason for that was that he uh, was inoculated against smallpox. There was a the fear for smallpox. So Washington was scared to death with the smallpox epidemic. And he understood, obviously, that if that would were to spread among his soldiers, the cause would probably be lost because... The, the 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 number of protected soldiers initially was very low, as opposed to the British, because the smallpox epidemics had been more prevalent in Europe, and inoculations had already been accepted there as um, more than on the American continent. Uh, so he said anybody who can prove that he had been inoculated or that he had had smallpox can go in. And there were, I think, about 1,000 soldiers and surgeons who went into the town uh, after the uh, British left. Washington eventually would order the whole Continental Army to get inoculated, but that early in the war, it was still very controversial. It was <laughs> way less universal at the beginning of the war. Yeah, and no, I mean, it was forbidden. Congress had forbidden it, and Washington forbade it because it wasn't without danger, uh, as you know, because basically what the inoculation meant was that you gave the soldiers smallpox. Mm-hmm. And they would be be bedridden, being sick for a while, not as seriously as after a natural you know, uh, contagion, but still. And so they were. They, it was very controversial, as you said. The whole inoculation story, still, even less than 1721. Uh, so you're right. So initially, there was not only uh, desire, but it was forbidden. But then he made a 180 degrees turnaround when he realized that this doesn't prevent the smallpox completely, so we better inoculate the army. And then, of course, he ordered everybody, all all unprotected soldiers, to be inoculated. After the British evacuation of Boston, John Warren's going to serve through the, the New York and New Jersey campaign that sees the American army get pushed slowly out of New York, through New Jersey, onto sort of the doorstep of, of the Patriot capital at Philadelphia. What was the role of Dr. Warren during that campaign? After the uh, after the evacuation of Boston, at that time, George Washington thought that the British would sail down to New York. So that's why he, he marched his uh, troops down to New York. Uh, so he was um, astounded by the fact when he found out that actually they had sailed up to Halifax. But anyhow, he had all the troops on there. And then later on, a couple of months later, after the, I think sometime in May, um, John Warren, together with some other surgeons, um, got on their horses and were riding down to New York to help Washington uh, with the 
war casualties when they because they were convinced it would happen. So he ended up being the chief or at least a prominent uh, surgeon at the uh, General Hospital in Long Island and saw the disastrous uh, results of that battle with thousands of Americans being killed. And um, at that time, John Morgan was also the uh, was still the um, uh, general surgeon, surgeon general of the Continental Army. And so there were a lot of interactions between John Morgan and John Warren at that time. Uh, and then, so then he followed the army on the retreat uh, across um, uh, Hudson River and uh, Manhattan and over to New Jersey and um, traveled down with the, and retreated down New Jersey together with the uh, forces. And he was actually also at the Trenton later on and at the Princeton battles. Uh, but then it's sort of um, the relationship between George Washington and John Warren at that time got sour. So is that how he ended up coming back to Boston in the, the spring or summer of 1777? Yes, I think that's why. Because at that time, there was a new surgeon general. So there was a lot of fights between and a lot of jealousy and rivalry between the different surgeons, unfortunately. The different surgeons being, you had regimental surgeons, you had hospital surgeons. Yes. So that was one type of friction, but there was a friction and uh, jealousy between the individuals within the same camp, so to speak. I mean, the prime example, obviously, between uh, Morgan and Shippen. So at that time, after the Trenton and and Princeton battles, um, Shippen had been appointed by uh, Congress and by George Washington to be the new uh, certain general. And all of a sudden, John uh, Warren felt left out because John Warren had been appointed at the time when uh, John Morgan was in charge. So, and now uh, Shippen was charged with getting his own people in. So he felt a little sidestepped. He felt, he felt sidestepped and he wrote to George Washington and said, Hey, I feel like I'm out of luck here, and I, I don't feel I have a role any longer, so I, I'm applying to you more formally for the promotion I think I deserve. And George Washington was pretty dismissive, I think, at least when you read the letters back and forth. It sounded basically that he said, well, tough luck, you're out of it. And and then John War- John Warren obviously got tired of that situation and said, I'll, I'll go back to Boston, and which I think was a good thing for medicine and surgery at least, yeah, and for his personal life. Well, speaking of his personal life, you write that he was young, good-looking, and a successful surgeon, which I read as John Warren was a catch. Uh, (laughs) So, his romantic life took off pretty soon after that. Can you describe who won his heart? So, that was Abigail, uh, who was the daughter of the governor of um, uh, Rhode Island. And she, she in herself was probably a catch. I mean, she was described both by John Warren and later on by, by John's and, and Abigail's son, Edward, as being very good looking and had a very, um, was very popular. She probably was even popular among the higher up uh, officers at that time. She ended up, um, when the British had been uh, threatful in uh, Rhode Island, she ended up in Cambridge initially. Uh, just at the time when George Washington came there, and she 
uh, was entertained or she uh, moving around in the circles of uh, George Washington, etc., etc. And there are some indications, at least described by some historians, that he had a good eye to her as well. Uh, later on in the war, when, the, when the, the, the forces were more centered in Philadelphia, she was down there as well and, uh, and probably made success. And so she was probably a catch as well. But he was, uh, I mean, John was lucky enough to catch her. <laughs> And uh, they got married and had, uh, I think, a happy marriage. As they're getting started in their marriage, John's trying to support the the family on a fairly limited salary, it sounds like, of a general hospital surgeon. As he was the still a, in a military role as a hospital surgeon, how was he also trying to build a private practice and, and grow some income? Well, so just like his brother, I think he was a successful surgeon and he became popular in, in Boston. And he, in terms of income, he also wanted to take advantage of the appointments at the almshouse. And uh, I think that's when he received some criticism that he was sort of uh, pushing that maybe a little too hard. And, and uh, so some of the politicians in Massachusetts at that time felt he was greedy and, uh, and so forth. But he, so he developed a, um, successful surgical practice and actually did a couple of um, groundbreaking surgeries, groundbreaking for those days, and also became interested in the training, more formal training of uh, surgeons, in addition to all the other intellectual and um, philosophical and humanistic interests that he had time to develop. So speaking of sort of these groundbreaking or, or landmark surgeries that Dr. John Warren would have performed, there, there was one that was described in a, a lot of detail in the book uh, as one of the first successful laparotomies. Correct. So can you describe for the, the listening audience what a laparotomy is and what he accomplished by performing that surgery? So laparotomy means opening of the abdominal cavity. And again, we have to remember this was done without general anesthesia. So the patients were awake. So that was in itself a groundbreaking thing. And this, yeah. right. And this was probably the second, at least documented, laparotomy performed on the American continent. And who was the patient in this case? And the name of the patient is not given, but it's described as a young Negro woman. And she had noticed a, a, a mass in her abdomen since quite some time, probably several months. And so laparotomies, as I said, were obviously painful and dangerous. And uh, John uh, Warren's laparotomy happened 1759. No, the, the 759 is the first one I refer to, and that was John okay. Bard, right. uh, followed a couple of years later by John Warren's laparotomy on this young woman. And so the, it's described, it's detailed, it's described in detail in uh, Edward's biography about his father. So I guess he had told him about what happened. So it's described how he makes the incision in the abdominal wall and they enter the abdominal cavity and put their fingers in, obviously without operating gloves and without sterile conditions. And they found this big mass in the left, replacing the left ovary. And they, they took that out. Before they did that, they sort of entered that. It was a cystic lesion, sort of a sac type of lesion. And they found interesting material inside that, uh, inside that cyst. They described it as being stuffed with, with hair. Right? right. So it was probably what we call a teratoma nowadays. So a teratoma is a type of tumor that develops from uh, pluripotent cells. Uh, 
like stem cells, you would probably call them today. Okay. And they can develop into different types of tissues. So sometimes you can find hair, find hair. You can find sebaceous glands and sebaceous material, like soap, soapy material. And you can even find cartilage and bones and teeth, etc., etc. But they did find hair that he described pretty well. And they took that out. And somehow the patient survived. Because most patients, or many patients, did not survive their surgeries. But she survived, and she became sort of a quote-unquote celebrity in Boston with all physicians interested to look at this, to see this patient. And so she had a lot of uh, visits in her in her hospital room. And then when she was discharged home, she survived also a longer time. She, she seems to have thrived, and she's described by Edwards as being ultimately a corpulent um, overweight lady who lived for several years. He doesn't describe exactly how old she became. So that was something that made John Warren obviously famous as well and um, and sort of spread the rumor about him as a magic type of surgeon. He also did some other interesting surgeries that were also groundbreaking. And I, di- I didn't relay that or re- refer to that in the in the book, but one of the other procedures was a disarticulation at the shoulder region. So there was a soldier who had sustained severe injuries to his arm. And in those days, it was considered uh, a no man's land to try to disarticulate up in the shoulder region. But Warren at that time understood that was the only way to, to uh, save that patient. And he did. And he became famous for that as well. And that may have been the first such procedure in the world. Describe, if you don't mind, what, what does it mean to disarticulate a shoulder? So that means to amputate the whole arm from the shoulder uh, joint and down. Rather than sort of at the elbow that would have been more common? Well, at the elbow or just transecting the bones in the middle of the upper arm or middle of the arm. So it was more an anatomic type of um, procedure in that sense. But it was considered dangerous because you have a lot of nerve structures and the blood vessels and so forth in the armpit up in the axilla or in the arm, uh, that uh, could be dangerous and was considered, as I said, almost you can't you can't get to that area. Would that have been during his wartime service then? Yes. That helps to highlight the reputation that John Warren had as an anatomist, that he was somebody who had studied the human anatomy in great detail. And I guess probably th- through that reputation and through his growing reputation in Boston, not that many years after his return to Boston, as the, the war was sort of winding down toward a negotiated peace, his alma mater came calling. How was the idea that ends up becoming Harvard Medical School born? So I think it was a, um, an idea that John Warren had for some time and discussed with his friends and colleagues. And those discussions, I think, spread to the... Um, to the leaders of the Harvard College, Harvard University. And uh, he obviously was aware of the fact that there were already two medical schools established in America at this time, one in Philadelphia and one in New York. And being in Boston, I guess, he felt that we should have one up at Harvard as well. And then he got charged by the uh, by the leadership in at Harvard to, to uh, develop a plan for opening a medical school. So that happened in 1782. Uh, so he then became the founder of sort of basically one man was behind that. Obviously, the, he didn't do it quite alone, but I think he was certainly the leader, the well-acknowledged leader of that effort. And then he became the first professor of surgery. 
it sounds like it, at first when the school opened, there were basically three professorships or three areas of study within the school. Right. So there was the uh, surgery anatomy. It was a combined type of um, charge. And then you had uh, the professor of physics, which was basically internal medicine. And then you had the the chemistry aspect of it. And, for, and pharmacology as well, the pharmacy aspect of it. But the I think the chemistry, the um, physics, and the surgery anatomy were the first initial, were the initial professorships. And Warren was then the first professor of surgery. He said there was an interesting little aside in the book as he was trying to to recruit the rest of the initial faculty and deciding sort of how the internal workings of the school would go as he was asking some of the, the folks at other medical schools around the country how seniority worked. Was it who had been in practice longer or who – and they said, no, it's just who got hired first. That worked well for him because he, he was the first one hired. That's right. No, so he consulted in particular with his colleagues in Philadelphia, how they had arranged that because the seniority question was important. And as you said, is it the seniority in terms of, you know, being best educated or is it in seniority in terms of being longest on in the position, et cetera, et cetera. And you are right. So the, the longevity or the, the time of appointment was an important factor. Where would the medical school have been located when it first opened in Boston? Or was it in Boston at first? I guess I should ask. Right. No, it was in Cambridge and it was all over. I mean, I was, they, so they used um, apartments. They used smaller rooms they could find. Both for um, for for the different types of specialty they they were teaching, and um, obviously with today's eyes pretty primitive, both in terms of uh, size and scope and uh, localities, and there was a fight between the faculty and and location because there was a strive to move things into Boston uh, because it was expensive and uh, uncomfortable. For the faculty having to, for the people who lived in Boston at that time, having to travel across the river and all, all, all to Cambridge and, and in particular wintertime, you know, it wasn't very convenient. But ultimately they moved into Boston. At the time the first students graduated from Harvard Medical, would their study have taken the place of an apprenticeship? Would they go on to an apprenticeship? Would there still be something? akin to today's residency after Harvard Medical? Yes. So they also did uh, apprenticeships, but the, the education in the medical school obviously took over much of that. And the emphasis was great, for example, at least from a surgical standpoint, on the dissections and the, um, and the learning of the anatomy. But then, uh, obviously, there was no uh, residency, but they obviously needed the practical aspect of learning it's and, and uh, in addition to the theoretical um so the, the dissection was one of those practical aspects the focus on learning anatomy through dissection is interesting because by the time john warren was a professor of anatomy he could more or less openly advertise that he was going to be giving a lecture involving dissection where just a few years before when he was a student Basically, anybody who wanted to do a dissection had to be a grave robber. <laughs> yes, at least to some extent. And so that's, that's a shady area in itself. I mean, it's um, the regulation of um, uh, retrieving corpses and so forth. There were laws in Massachusetts that allowed dissection and um, retrieval of um, 
executed criminals, for example. It was a specific sentence that one could be um, sentenced to dissection for dueling in particular, I think. Uh, yes. But it was badly needed, obviously, if you wanted to learn anatomy. And But still, even if they kept within the framework of the law, it was still controversial in many places. For example, Shippen down in Philadelphia, when he started his anatomy school, he got harassed by, by people and... Uh, people was were there were mobs demonstrating outside the 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 house where they knew dissections were going on and stones were thrown into the windows etc etc. In New York, so similar things during uh, during Bard's time when when there was a riot in New York, the doctors' riot in New York, which was basically an opposition or a riot against dissections that took place, and that also had a racial aspect because in, in New York at least they. The, the grave robberies mainly took place at the um, graveyards for outside the city limits where where the um, uh, black people were buried. They were not allowed to be buried inside the city limits. And so there was a lot of controversy and a lot of violence going on against that. I want to ask about John and Abigail Warren's home life a little bit because they found themselves, I, I think I read that they had 10 children to care for. Yes. And that was Joseph's surviving children, but also their own. How did how did it break down? How many children did John and Abigail have themselves? I think they had five surviving uh, five surviving children. I don't remember. I think they all said some children died in in um, infancy, if I remember correctly. But yes, yeah, so when the family was established, they had five surviving own children. John was sort of family father. He is described as being very keen on keeping the traditions in the family and and also religious and uh, attending church regularly etc cetera, etc cetera. and um, so they actually had a house um, that they ultimately got a home down at um, the school street i think you know a, a street off uh, washington street what was that home like it sounds like it was a, a pretty large house Right, so it's described as a pretty large house, and it was sort of um, so. Even though they, for example, his wife Abigail did not like the concept of slavery, and I think John was also opposed to it, like many people were in those days. Well, it's interesting. John Warren's parents enslaved a handful of people, and Joseph had at least one enslaved servant in his life. So I was really curious to read that John and Abigail were. So early and, and ardent about abolition. Right. So, I mean, I think it was Abigail, was, I mean, John's wife, who said, uh, the, talked about slavery as this curious or something, something like that, this curious institution in this society. There were a lot of opposition to the thought of it. So both John and Abigail didn't like the idea of slavery. And I think uh, some of the people are described in the book, you know, there was a a girl coming home to shave his, uh, to cut his hair every now and then, and there were other uh, tasks being performed. And I'm not even sure if they were enslaved or if they were paid as uh, servants at that time. I think that given the timing, it was probably right in the middle of Massachusetts' gradual emancipation. So they they were probably in in some form of indenture rather than actually enslaved during during those few years. And I mean, several of the other um, surgeons that I described in the book were also against slavery. I mean, Benjamin Rush, for example, was obviously very uh, opposed to slavery and uh, and was active in the in that movement. Speaking of Benjamin Rush, that brings to mind the one 
surgery that Dr. John Warren performed that most people probably have the most awareness of would be the mastectomy performed for Nabby, uh, the only daughter of John and Abigail Adams. But most people are aware of that through the HBO miniseries about John Adams. And in the miniseries, they portray it as though Benjamin Rush had performed the surgery. I haven't seen that miniseries myself, but I probably should because it's also interesting. But anyhow, if it's portrayed that way, it's probably inaccurate. No, I think it's pretty, <laughs> I think so. pretty well documented that that John Warren, together with his son and some other assistants, performed the surgery. However, Benjamin Rush played a role in it. When Nebby started to feel the lump in her right breast, she was living in upstate New York at that time, as you know, and with her family. And she felt this lump in the right breast for quite some time. And it's, it's actually a very interesting description of a breast cancer. And she uh, finally told her mother that. And then her parents, both John and Abigail, uh, told her to come down to Boston to see a, a real doctor. And so she traveled down to Boston and consulted different doctors in Boston. But she also knew that her father, John Adams, who at this time was the ex-president, obviously, was a good friend of Benjamin Rush. And Benjamin Rush at that time was probably one of the most highly respected physicians and surgeons in the country. And so she wrote a letter to Benjamin Rush herself and described the symptoms, etc., etc., and the signs and what she had felt. And she she described the, the, the tumor, how it sort of seemed to grow first, and then it was shrinking, and there was reddened skin on top of the tumor, which may indicate that she had an inflammatory breast cancer, which is one of the most aggressive types of breast, types of breast cancer. But anyhow, and then, so Benjamin Rush read the letter, and he replied with a, with his own letter relatively soon, but not directed to her. So he sent the letter to her father, because he was concerned, or at least through his thinking, he was concerned that she would be scared and upset if she read what he wrote. And he wrote that you should let the that the, let the knife fly immediately because this sounds like cancer. And he wrote about his 50 years of experience with that disease and um, and uh, said that, you know, any other treatment would just be futile, would not be good for her. And so she then consented to the surgery. So it was it was a quite dramatic experience for John and uh, Abigail Adams, I mean her parents, and obviously for the patient herself, and probably for John Warren itself. In addition to that, and if this if there was happening in 1811, that was well into John Warren's career. He wasn't a new f- surgeon by any means at that right. point. He was the, right. one of the most respected surgeons in the Commonwealth, the anatomist at Harvard Medical School. What would the experience of a major surgery like that have been like for the patient, the family, and the surgical team in 1811? I think horrendous for all of them. So it's described in some historians' descriptions of it that uh, that Nebby obviously was a brave person. She understood what was awaiting her, and she was described as coming to the operating room, which, by the way, was the second-level bedroom upstairs, her parents' bedroom. And the house she, is Quincy that people can still go that's visit true, anytime. That's right. That's yeah. right. And then she came, came in the room, composed and calm, seemingly calm, dressed in her Sunday clothes and with a hymn book from which she was singing through the procedure. Uh, but still, obviously, must have been tremendously painful. 
because there was no uh, there was no um, general anesthesia. And, uh, and, and what were the instruments like that Dr. Warren was using for this surgery? So basically two or three instruments or four instruments if we count what he used at the end. So basically a type of uh, fork with which he could lift the breast from the chest wall and then a sharp uh, racing racer type of knife that he chopped the breast off once he had lifted it off and then some additional knives. And it's interesting to read the descriptions of it. Because he also found enlarged lymph nodes in the armpit at the same time. So, and I think the understanding that this was a dangerous and a, um, and a fatal type of disease, that was well understood. And I think the concept of this, that type of tumor cancer spreading through the lymph nodes was also well established because when he discovered that, he went in there and raced into, as it's described, raced into the, um, into the armpit and took those lymph nodes out as well. And then, of course, the fourth instrument that I refer to is a spatulum. So once the breast was off the chest wall, there was no skin enough, not skin enough to close with stitches to close this, the defect. So how to stop the bleeding? Well, so they used these uh, glowing, heated uh, spatulas. So, so in the operating room, quote-unquote, they also had a little oven upon which... Uh, um, upon which these spatulas were uh, heated and, and with a glowing spatulum, and they used them to cauterize the area to stop the bleeding. And that in itself must have been a tremendous experience. And it, I think it was even too much even for John and Abigail. So they, I didn't, uh, they were present during part of the procedure, but I think at that time they walked out of the room. They couldn't take it any longer. Um, if the descriptions are to believe, be believed, but I mean, so it was a, so what was the experience like for the patient and for the parents and for the patient and for the surgeons? I think hor- horrendous. Yeah, it sounds horrifying. But she, she survived the procedure. And after a couple of months, she could travel back up to her family in upstate New York. But unfortunately, she developed um, a, metas- a recurrent breast cancer. She started having headaches and probably she had brain metastases. And she came back to... Um, to her parents' home in a bay in a poor condition and died after only a couple of weeks. And uh, John Adams was the one who took care of her ultimately and took care of her daily, I mean, uh, taking care of his hygiene and when she needed to go to the bathroom, etc., etc., and was feeding her. Abigail couldn't put up with it. She couldn't just stand it. Right. That very famous surgery comes close to the end of Dr. John Warren's career uh, in the end, he died in 1815, uh, just a few months before Harvard Medical reorganized and appointed his son, John Collins Warren, as the school's first dean. What what were the circumstances of John Warren's death? He died from a pneumonia, but he also at his autopsy. So, he was undergoing autopsy after his death. He was found to have severe arteriosclerosis of his uh, heart uh, vessels. A coronary artery disease. Uh, so, and he had suffered from angina or chest pain a long time. But I think the immediate death, cause of death was probably pneumonia. He was out. Uh, he didn't spare himself, not even at the end towards his life. And he did um, home visits uh, to sick patients, even in bad weather, even towards the end. 
He stayed home. He didn't see any patients the last couple of weeks, I think. But up until very close to the end, he kept struggling and trying to see patients. And family didn't like that. They advised him to stop and take it, I mean, calm down a little. But that was his nature, I think. Then the younger John Collins Warren would go on to preside over the first use of anesthesia with William T.G. Morton in 1846. How did the Warren family come to have such an incredible influence over the practice of medicine in Boston f- for almost a century? Must be some good genes somewhere around <laughs> with smart people. And uh, I mean, John Collins was also present at the mastectomy of Abbey, of Nebby. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Yes, no. He, he had come back from training in England at that time, and he had started to build his own practice, and he was one of the assistants uh, at the time. And he admired his father much. He said, well, you know, I think I'm a pretty good surgeon, but I will never reach the level of my father, he said about John, which I think is also remarkable. But then, obviously, he went on to have a pretty grandiose career himself with the ether anesthesia and all what he did for surgery in Boston. There's a passage where you're describing uh, John Warren, and you say that he was a devoted husband, a father and family man. He was religious, impatient quick to lose his temper, ready to fight for his honor. And then on top of all that, he was a skillful, brave, and highly regarded surgeon. So it sounds like you also have a lot of admiration for John Warren. Yes. I think John Warren was um, one of the most outstanding um, surgeons at the time and um, an interesting uh, individual with a lot of aspects and facets to his life. Um Yes, so I admire that a lot. And I mean, just to dare to do the type of operations he did, also writing. I mean, he, it's interesting to, you know, I think the first paper published in New England, in the future New England Journal of Medicine was actually by John Warren. And it was about coronary artery disease, interesting enough, which he suffered himself. Well, our listeners may not believe it, but that covers just the first two chapters of the book, Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge. Uh, if people want to follow you or your work online, or do you do Twitter or social media? So I have a Facebook account and also a website, Per Olof Hasselgren, it's my name, first and second name in one word, dot com. Well, Dr. Per Olof Hasselgren, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. To learn more about Dr. Per Olaf Hasselgren and his book, Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 237. We'll have links to Dr. Hasselgren's website and Facebook profile, plus a link where you can support the show and your local bookstore by purchasing the book, Revolutionary Surgeons. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 